Well, we are we are coming to the close. I think the Olympics close tonight, right? Is this closing ceremonies for the Olympics? No, this is not closing ceremonies for us. Uh, it's just, you know, the amateurs who are over in London taking a swing at this. Uh, they're done tonight. Your Olympic events continue uh, at this point. Let me just give you a little, little bit of a taste of update. And I know this update is dependent upon how well you are doing updating. So things like 30-30 Bible reading, getting in the Word every day, 30 minutes a day. We started off with 231 folks signed up for that event, going for it. Uh, the last kind of best update a week ago was 147 still in the race. Uh, there's a bunch of dead people along the path. But, you know, listen, that's the thing about a race. You've rested. Now pick yourself up, right? Get back in. All right? This is an eternal race. 30-30 prayer started with 150 folks. Last record, it was down to about 101. Uh, so some folks hanging in there. Listen, but don't quit. Don't quit. Don't even if you had a struggle. Doctrinal study started with about 95 people who signed up for the study of the doctrines of grace. was down to about 78. Uh, scripture memorization started with about 68 folks, down to about 39. Uh, yeah, that event's, that event's hurting. Um, <laughs> and then the uh, hours of church service started with 82 folks signing up for that, down to about 36 as of last record. All right, so we're learning some things about ourselves, right? Those numbers show us something. Uh, and, and let me just put a plug in, not this Friday night, but I think it's the next Friday night will be our closing ceremonies. And if you guys are here for opening ceremonies, uh, listen, it was not only a fun time, but it was a meeting with God time. I mean, it really was a wonderful time for God to be with us, for us to draw near to him. So put that on your calendar. Uh, we're going to do that again. We're going to get near to God and, and let God's presence be in our midst in a unique way on that evening. It's a Friday night. Well, the ceremonies that are going to close tonight tell a story for some folks that it's been going on for, for years. Now, you don't get to the Olympics by deciding a few minutes before the Olympics or a few months before the Olympics. I think I'd like to be an Olympic athlete. You get to be in the Olympics by starting at four years old or six years old or nine years old or whenever it is it began to make a severe step towards accomplishing this goal. And, and there's been an amazing, some, some great stories that have been told, guys with a bunch of medals hung around their, their necks. But I, I want to highlight something before the message here. Uh, it costs something to be in the Olympics. It costs these guys who participate. I came across some, some headlines as to, you know, the cost-benefit factor here. One headline says, why Michael Phelps won't return to Olympic swimming in 2016. It's an interesting article. And what it highlighted basically was it just takes too much to pull this off. Your training isn't just, hey, right beforehand, I'm just going to pull off a little bit of training. Michael Phelps' training is six days a week, six hours a day, swimming 50 miles a week. Right, dude, swimming eight miles a day, some of us don't drive that far to work and back every day. He's in a pool swimming that much every day, eating 12,000 calories a day. Now, some of us might like that, but I'm, that sounds like a full-time job. You imagine the average person eats 2,000, 2,500 calories. This guy's eating 12,000. So I'm thinking, what does his life look like? Well, he gets up, stares at a bunch of food, wolfs it down, waits, you know, good lifeguard, waits a half an hour before he gets in the pool, <laughs> gets in the pool, swims and swims and swims, works out, works out, eats some more. I mean, I mean, lunch, what is two-hour lunch, power lunch, 12,000 calories, and, and then swims some more, and then he's got to load up again on more food, and then I'm sure he passes out, and the next day starts again, and this is his routine every day, and this is what he's been doing since he was like, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, and now he's 27. You can understand why I won't be back. <laughs> it's not that he doesn't like to swim in the Olympics and win medals, but it takes something to compete at that level. And there, there's a prize that's being run for in these events, right? Maybe you've heard of Lolo Jones. She was a, one of the female track stars who competed this year. Lolo Jones told the Today Show that she worked for six days a week for four years, all for a 12-second race. That puts something in perspective, doesn't it? It's 
somebody from San Francisco in the Examiner commented a little bit into that article. It says, I imagine that most people don't realize how hard all those Olympic athletes work. Every one of the Olympic athletes gave up their life for the time they were training for the 2012 Olympics. That's very true. An extreme amount of dedication. I heard one of the announcers describing this particular Japanese gymnast uh, and saying that in the past year, that guy had been at home 17 days. That's it. The rest of the 365 days were spent at a training facility in Japan preparing for the Olympics. There's, there's a cost, and, and some of this is kind of a sad cost. I don't know how headlines-ish some of this stuff is. Newsweek had an article that says, Gabby Douglas, Ryan Lochte, why families of America's Olympic athletes are broke. Gabby Douglas's mother declared bankruptcy. Ryan Lochte's family faces foreclosure on their home. Years of spending huge sums with little outside assistance to prepare their kids to become Olympic heroes leaves many U.S. families on the brink of financial disaster. I think the Gabby Douglas's mom was $80,000 in debt. Right, so athletics, competition at this level, this Olympic level of devotion and give your life and lay down your life and amass debt and spend and train your body and deny yourself a lifestyle that everybody else is having. Get up in the morning, focus in on your contribution to 50 miles of swimming that week while everybody else, you know, goes off and does something and you live this little narrowly defined life. Right? All right, that's the backdrop for this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is going to use the Olympics, the Olympics back then too. Paul's going to use the Olympics to preach to Christians about the event of their life. Now, he's going to use the Olympics here as an illustration. Right? If I, I were to ask you guys, what, what image from your life would you borrow to communicate to someone what the Christian life is like? Right? Maybe, maybe somebody you meet in the foyer and they're, they're a new believer and they're, they're just kind of getting their feet moving in the Christian life and, and you, you get around them and you start wanting to give them an idea. What's, what's ahead for you? What, what's involved in this life? What, what imagery would you create? something that they would understand, something from your own experience that would communicate to them. This, this is the life of a Christian. Right? Jesus used imagery, used images like sheep and shepherds and wolves right? that, that came to life. People were familiar with those images, and they would have understood the nuances of living life as a sheep, being cared for and led by a shepherd, being on guard and protecting yourself from wolves that are in your midst. Paul, in other places, used the imagery of war. You know, common scenes of living in this time would have been Roman soldiers dressed in their garb with their helmets and their shields and their swords, fighting opponents, warfare conditions and situations. And Paul drew from that to say, hey, Christian, this is what it's like. You wake up in the morning and you go face the day uh, it'd be good if you had a soldier's mindset, that you were going out facing the day the same way that a soldier walks out, that there's, there's live ammunition going on out there, there's a real enemy going on out there, you better put on the armor that you need to live the Christian life. Well, here's another image that he gives to us. It's the image of an athlete. Let's start reading verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for though... I am free from all. I'm, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Lord, these are passionate verses. Lord, one wonders how the Apostle Paul communicated this to people when he spoke of people that he was seeking to win, the lifestyle he was willing to embrace in order to be prepared for the event of winning these folks. Well, these are passionate verses. Lord, keep us, guard us, protect us from being dispassionate about things that you are all revved up about. So God, be with us this morning. Open our ears, influence our hearts, give us grace to receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Look back in verse 19. It says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. That's who I am. I'm Paul, servant to all. At at some point in our lives, we we seek this out. We we want something to kind of define who we are, right? Terminologies, you know, from the past used to be, you know, you're, you're trying, oh, you're trying to find your identity, or this guy's freaking out. You'd say, oh, he's going through an identity crisis. He kind of doesn't know who he is. Uh, we kind of don't use that term anymore. I don't, I don't find a lot of people running around talking about identity. But, you know, can you remember when you were growing up? You know, for, for me in high school, there, was, there were certain groups you could identify with. There were certain groups you could connect with. There were jocks. There were nerds. There were freaks. Just watch and see when you shake your head on this. Uh, and then there were preppies who were kind of like a combination, you know, multi-platter thing going on with the preppies. It had more to do with what part of town you were from and how you dressed. You know, back then, alligator shirts. Y'all remember alligator shirts? I mean, that's so out now. It's like alligator shirts were defining that and topsiders, and you were you were in. That's it. Alligator shirt, topsiders. And then there was people like me were this hybrid between jock freak and nerd. I had this strange thing going on. So, you know, I could, I could play ball. Uh, I could do drugs with you. And I could score well on my test. So I was, just, I was confusing. But the one thing you would not catch me doing was wearing an alligator shirt and topsiders. I was a protester <laughs> of preppies. Every chance I could, I made fun of guys wearing that kind of stuff. But, you know, so all right, so we're trying to identify. We want to be around something that kind of helps us. We connect ourselves. We adjust our lives to sort of fit in to that identity. Well, well Paul kind of says he did something like that, but he's, he's a little bit backwards in what he does. He says, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Right? He's, he's hitched his life to these other people. And then he identifies uniqueness about their lives, and he basically says what, what was uniquely in their life, what uniquely defined their life, began to be a defining force in my life. But, but do you see how different it is than when I was in high school? You know, I, I, I wanted to be defined. I wanted to be in a group. I wanted to fit in. I wanted those people to sort of be okay with me. So I kind of needed the group. I needed them to be in my life a certain way. So if I act a certain way, go with you on certain things, talk a certain lingo, get around you with a certain attitude, then, then you'll validate me. So, so I'm really sort of using you because I, I'm, get, I'm wanting to get something from you here. Paul's the opposite of that. 
Paul attached himself to people. Paul identified with people, but he did it the opposite way. He would identify what was in their life, what did they need, and he would get involved with them for the sake of their need, not for the sake of his. And listen, this is, this is such a, a counter-cultural thing for us today. You know, whether, whether we like it, whether you ever sat down and signed up for this, you know, this is that secondhand smoke effect of living in a world where people are not like Paul, seeking to serve all, not a servant to all. The people in our world are seeking to be served by all. Right? We have a very much a what's in it for me mentality. So we, we create settings and we create relationships with the hope that we're investing in something that's got return for me. So I'm getting into this relationship. I want to get to know you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be around you because I, I want something for me in this. Right? That's, that's, that's the way our social media, our social networks are designed that's the way friendship is being done. Uh, and, and you're not going to miss me, miss an opportunity to bang on the disloyalty in this world. It's worse than, than I can ever remember growing up. People are incredibly disloyal to one another. And I think this, this undercurrent is why. Because we approach relationships on the basis of what are you going to do for me? And the day you stop doing that for me is the day that I'm out of here. And the, those days are getting shorter and shorter. So whether it's the expectation of Scripture that we would be long-term committed in our marriages to one another or that our friendships would have the ability to weather difficulties or whether being a part of a church is not about being slightly offended and I'm on my way do you understand that the church says something about God? It says something about the loyalty of God. I just, I just find people these days, are, they're just real thin in how much they're willing to put up with inconvenience and difficulty. In a, just move on is what they'll do. Well, that's the world. We're, we're inheriting this stuff from the world. We are, we are using people to get some need going on in our life connected with. I was reading an interesting book. This person studies media and studies technology and uh, not a believer. But they were making a comment about kind of how the social networking world is affecting the way people think about relationships. And really it's isolating them from real relationships and putting them into these social network contexts. But one of the things that this author identified was the mindset behind sort of Twitter, um, Facebook, here's, here's, the, here's the practice of Twittering and Facebooking. It's, it's almost like being a DJ with an audience, right? You have your audience, your audience is your 100 people, your 200 friends or whatever it is, and then you post something, you broadcast something about your life, and then you just sort of check to see what kind of response came back? You know, I think this is a big deal about me. Do you think it's a big deal about me? I think it's a big deal. Do you think it's a big deal? And it's kind of like this cheer thing goes on. It's like, and you go back and you check. And it's kind of like fishing. Kind of like, I threw this out. How many people bit? No, no one responded. <laughs> it's like, bunch of losers. Don't they know this is, this is cool? I did, you know, it's like we're waiting for people to respond to us. But but here's the difficulty in this book that was being highlighted. <clears throat> it's, it's sort of this one-way thing happening because the person broadcasting isn't really taking any interest in you because you're just one of 150 faces. And I'm just kind of twittering. So I'm, I'm sort of just saying this to everybody and saying it to no one in particular all at the same time. So I, I don't have you in mind as much as I'm just broadcasting hoping you will have me in mind. So I'm not engaging you. I'm not engaging your life. I'm just broadcasting, wanting people to take interest in my life. So it's these kinds of undercurrents that are in our culture, I think, that are wearing 
our loyalties to one another very thin. And yet when you read here from Paul, you find Paul is the opposite of that. Right? When he is able to say, I, I have become all things to all people. And I'm not going to classically go into this and unpack, you know, what was it like to be a Jew for the Jew, for the weak, for the... But can we at least go here, you know, when you get around Paul, there's this, there's this eagerness in him. Paul's, Paul's selling something in this passage, right? He's selling this eagerness to be involved inconveniently in people's lives. And he seems to be thrilled about that. Right? He's not apologizing for it. He's not saying, woe is me. Oh, you have no idea what it's like to deal with the Jews on this basis. There's no complaining. It's a promotion of an approach. He's, you know, he gets around the Jews, and he's, he's learning them. He's looking at them. He's studying them. He's figuring out where's the need in their life. Okay, I'm going to have to approach them this way. I'm going to have to dress this way, talk this way, accommodate relationships this way. And then the next thing you know, his audience is the, the, the godless person, the person who doesn't have any tradition, religious background, but he's a Gentile. And, and now Paul's underneath the burden of how do I build to that person? Let me study that person and figure out how I can get involved in their life so that I might meet a need in their life. And then he gets around the week. The week you've got, you know, little quirky personality issues going on with the week. But Paul's willing to let the quirkiness sit on him and he will adjust his life for the sake of their need. Do you see how backwards this is? This isn't an attempt on his part to get everybody else to meet some need in him. He doesn't sound like he's even aware of his need. He sounds like he's very aware that there is a need out there that I need to tune into. And I need to serve and give my life to to those folks. I am free, but I've made myself a slave to that need. Now listen, you know, you and I can come into church with kind of that customer... What, what will you do for me mentality? You know, we, we, we come into the church. Sometimes we're coming to the church based on its programs, you know, because the church have this, 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 and this. And does it happen at these times, these times, and these times? Because we, we want the church to meet some need in our life. And listen, you guys know this. I mean, the church is part hospital. Right? The church is an odd place to be. It's part hospital. Uh, it's, it's part field unit. So it's appropriate for us to come into the hospital, beat up by life, needing for somebody to put some bandages on me and help me get through this. That's appropriate. I'm not trying to discourage anybody from being in that place. But you can get stuck in that mode. And next thing you know, that's, that's how your life is. And so, you know, you hear us promote covenant groups. Oh, get in the covenant group, get in the covenant group, get in the covenant group. And you get in with a mentality of, okay, you people better perform for me. I'm giving up a weeknight to be here. You see how you're going to show up in my life. What are you, what are you going to do for me? And then, then we kind of, if you, if you approach it that way, you will definitely be disillusioned and disappointed. But that, that wasn't Paul's approach. Paul walked into a setting where he identified where is, where is the need that I can serve that need. It's a different mindset for him. He would have been a part of a church identifying that within the group, within the church here, appreciate Annette sharing her own experience of getting involved in a church and recognizing there's a need for children to be cared for. There's, there's children here. They need to be led, cared for. They have programs that we design for them to benefit from. We have children to be cared for at Alpha. I mean, do, do I walk into this setting and say, I see, I see children here. I see teenagers, I I see elderly individuals. How can I study them and put myself into their life and help be a part of meeting the need that's in their life? We have new converts in the church. Do I come into the church not just wanting to receive teaching, receive equipping, but but to serve? Is anybody aware that there's new converts seated near you? That they need somebody to look out for them, to hold their hand and check on them and make sure things are going okay. They're getting overwhelmed by stuff. They're living the same life you and I are living. There's an opportunity to serve that need. There are newly married couples. Some of you have been married for a long time. You've weathered storms. You've been through things. You've got something to share and you look around. Young couples. There's a need to study them. Become all things to all people so that you might by all means See the gospel penetrate their lives and affect them. 
Uh, that's Paul learning and adjusting. Learning and adjusting. Not, not asking you to adjust to me. Learning and adjusting. All right, that's his life. And he has an interesting little phraseology here when he says, For though, though I'm free, I've made myself a servant. Right, he uses this contrasting statement. I'm, I'm free, but I'm enslaved. I'm free not to, but I'm compelled to in such a way that it's like, it's like I'm owned by this thing, although I'm free not to. Right, it's an interesting thing for the Christian life. I put in your outline and call it the, the freely obligated Christian. It doesn't sound like an oxymoron, right? Now listen, listen, can I just tell this before I even read what that means? Unfortunately, at some point in your Christian life, this, this may happen to you. We get involved with people, we get involved with outreach, we get involved with small groups, we get involved with serving, and all those things we freely do. Bible study so that we might know and grow and understand things of God, and and then at some point we do it long enough to where it doesn't have newness to it anymore, and we begin to get into the danger now of now, now we, we feel like these things are kind of being imposed and obligated on us. We want you to be in a small group. Oh, I can just hear the chains rattling now. All this church talks about, you know, ching, ching, just shackle me to my small group. Oh, or now you're into this Olympic Bible study stuff. Oh, I guess you want us to come to school the word next. Oh, you know, can you remember when you used to love to come to stuff, right? I mean, I got saved and I got a Bible and then I found out people teach the Bible and I went and got around and it was like, wow, this stuff, it makes sense. Say that again. Wow. And where'd you find that? I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Where'd you say that was? Do you remember that those days? Feed me. This is exciting. It's air. It's oxygen for my soul. Give me more. And then somewhere along the line it becomes, no, I didn't come to school of the word, Peter. <laughs> this cloak of shame. And uh, Listen, there's, there's something here about the Christian who is free yet strangely obligated, Right? freely obligated Christian. There's a sense in which the gospel of grace frees us from being obligated to meet God's righteous requirement. But then it compels us to an obligation to shoulder the gospel need of humanity. Right? That's what Paul's describing here. There's no effort on Paul's part to try and pay something to God. Right? That that's an insult to God. You will draw God's opposition very quickly when your efforts get associated with you trying to gain purchasing power with God. It's offensive to God. You got no game to bring to a holy God in that category. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says, I'm not obligated that way, but I am obligated i become all things to all people. There's something about the need in their life that obligates me. I, I feel a sense of responsibility. I was one of them. And I escaped the darkness and the dominance of sin and the effect of Satan upon people's lives. I was one of them. i got to go back in. It's like you've been pulled out of a burning building. There's other people in there. There's something in you that says, I've got to go back in. I've got to reach them. That by all means I might win. I might save some. You know, when you read, when you read the New Testament, not just Paul or what Jesus said, the, the New Testament knows nothing of unobligated Christians. No such animal in the New Testament. The New Testament Christian sits under the weight of the Great Commission. The New Testament Christian understands something about their own salvation. Let me just disturb you for a moment. If you know nothing about making disciples, about seeking the lost, to share with them that they need to be saved, it highlights how poorly you understand salvation. If you think little of what you've been saved from, then you've got nothing to broker to anybody else. But if you understand what you have come out of, then there's a holy terror in you for others. That's what Paul was talking about. 
I'm under obligation to these people. I understand I'm free, but no matter what form they're in, no matter what their lifestyle is like, no matter who they are, I'm going to become whatever they need me to become so that I might by all means save some. Look in verse 23. This this is a life-defining motivation here for the spiritual athlete. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That'd be a be a great bumper sticker, right, for your car. As a matter of fact, I think, guys, help me remember this. I think we should make bumper stickers that say that. Whenever we baptize people, we should give them one on the way out. Do it all for the sake of the gospel. From now on, do it all for the sake of the gospel. Hey, Keith, what you doing? I don't know, but I'm doing it all for the sake of the gospel. That, that's why I'm doing. That's what's motivating me in this moment. Every aspect of life. See, that, that call... You sit underneath it as a Christian. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. You want to try and figure out how to handle any situation, what attitude to have, how to take the next step? Well, just be informed by is your next step doing it for the sake of the gospel? And, and, and don't make that just, well, you know, I'm preaching in the pulpit for the sake of the gospel. Okay, it's way too narrow and it's, it's way too few of us. How about, how about housework for the sake of the gospel? Right, guys, going back to school. How about homework for the sake of the gospel? How about, how about career work for the sake of the gospel? That the, the manner of your life, the way you conduct yourself, your attitude toward how much you're willing to study something. How hard are you willing to work? What's your attitude going to be like as you clean a toilet and no one thanks you for that? Well, I'd do it for the sake of the gospel. Listen, this, this is where the gospel message was intended to travel into our lives. Every aspect, friendships in your life for the sake of the gospel. Certain non-friendships in your life for the sake of the gospel. Your friendships get governed by, does this hamper or further the gospel? You guys know I don't have a Facebook page. (laughs) But if I did, I would hope I'd be able to say, Facebook for the sake of the gospel. Facebook communication for the sake of the gospel. What you post for the sake of the gospel. What you appreciate about others posting for the sake of the gospel. This is not happening on Facebook. Stop treating Facebook like it's a parallel universe that doesn't say anything about you. You're still a real person. You still have a reputation. You still draw breath. You still got an address with your feet on this earth for the sake of the gospel. If you go online, you're still you. You're either redeemed, proclaiming the redemption of God, or you're modeling the fallenness of humanity. And you're doing it, I hope, for the sake of the gospel. So that picture that you just put up, does it celebrate redemption? Does it celebrate a God who came into the world to redeem men from fallen, sinful, substitute ideas? Or does it celebrate the same stuff Everybody who's lost in the world, blind to God, and clueless about what righteousness is, does it celebrate that? And then when it's a bud, and you click on it, and you put your imprimatur of, that was funny, that was cool, way to go. Are you, are you stamping something with approval that drove Christ to the cross? That God said, this is a fallen, desperate planet of people who need to be redeemed out of those kinds of patterns, out of that way of thinking, out of that kind of value system, into something different. And you go on Facebook for the sake of the gospel. Don't click anything that's not going to proclaim and give opportunity for the gospel in your life. It's true. 
your private moments. It's true when you're driving the car and no one's with you except that guy that just pulled out in front of you. And you respond for the sake of the gospel. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. You, you tip the waiter for the sake of the gospel. You interact with the unpleasantries of a fallen world. Somebody didn't do customer service right for you. They definitely violated your rights. You have been done wrong by XYZ company and its representatives, and you picked the phone up. All right, now just two ways to think about this. You pick the phone up, and I'm an anonymous person who you will never, ever see again in your life, and I got a complaint, and you're the first person I get to talk to. All right, you pick the phone up, and I'm going to see you at my alpha table next week. You going to say the same thing? Because you never can tell how it is that you're going to interact with somebody that's either going to create an opportunity for the gospel or embarrass the gospel. Right? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul taught the Corinthians. David Pryor says, every encounter, every personal habit was now overtly under the control of Jesus Christ as Lord. Because the gospel dominated his whole life. He was living his daily life in the light of eternity. And that meant evangelism with integrity. Relationships with adaptability. I'm willing to be inconvenienced by you. I'm willing to adjust who I am. You don't have to meet my criteria for me to make a difference in your life because I'm here to serve your need. And personal holiness with single-mindedness. Gordon Fee says of these verses, he says, in their case, it will mean not simply foregoing some rights for the sake of others, but also foregoing some things altogether because they are inherently incompatible with the Christian contest. Right? In this passage, there is a contest going on. Right? He spends the first half of the verses here talking about there's something for the Christian to win. There's something of a prize available. He uses the term win five times, that I may win, that I may win, that I may win, that I may win. And then he turns around and associates all that winning with the word save, that I may by all means save some. What did he have in mind here? There was a prize He was living his life as though, and the next thing that comes to mind, it's as though I'm one of the athletes in the Olympic Games. Another image that would have been very common to them. They lived right near athletic activity. He says, Christians, it's like we're Olympic athletes in the life that we're living. There's a prize. There's something to achieve. There's something to be won. Listen, Do you understand the the connotation that if you and I understand what's at stake, what there is to be won by the race that we won, that we're running, then we don't want to run aimlessly. We don't just be Christians just wandering through the earthly countryside until Jesus comes back to pick us up. Just just wandering. Where's the course? Oh, there's a course. I I, I didn't know. Yeah, there's a course. There's a finish line. There's something to be accomplished with your life. There's something to be achieved with your life. There's something to win. You have something to win. Paul didn't just have something to win. He said, everybody listen to me. You've got something to win. Run so as to win the prize because it matters. So then he goes into, okay, but if you're going to run to win, well then what kind of preparation are you going to need to have? What kind of lifestyle is going to need to accompany the the athlete here. And so he borrows from the Olympics. David Gill says, the games to which Paul alludes are probably those of the Isthmian festival held in the nearby sanctuary of Poseidon at Isthma. Training was taken seriously. Philostratus, the elder, comments, if you have worked hard enough to render yourself worthy of going to Olympia, if you have not been idle or ill-disciplined, then go with confidence. But those who have not trained in this fashion, let them go where they will. This is kind of one of those go hard or go home. 
That's what he was saying back then. He didn't have cool terminology yet, but that's what he was trying to say. Olympic athletes had to reside at Ellis, the town controlled by Olympia, for a month before the games. If you're going to compete as an Olympic athlete back in that day, it was going to cost you something. You were going to adjust your life. You were going to prepare yourself. You were going to be serious. You respected the uniqueness of what you were getting the privilege to do to be a participant in the games, to be, to be the best in the world. And you prepared yourself in light of that. Let me, let me, just, let me just make a little side note here. Because I think sometimes we, we're just not well informed how to engage the culture when we read passages like this. I don't think what Paul is attempting to do here, I don't think he does it. I don't think it's his attempt to do it. I don't think he condemns anybody who's participating in the games. I don't think Paul's down on athletes who work hard, train hard, and want to be successful at what they do. Uh, I think he's using their life as an example of, of how Christians might approach the Christian life. But, but this is not one of those, oh, well, he's insulting athletics. See, you know, Christians shouldn't be involved in athletics. Shouldn't be doing that, you know. If you were really holy, you, know, you wouldn't be really all hung up in all that athletic stuff. Okay, what would you be hung up in? Would you be lousy at your job too? You lousy neighbor, your house is just overrun, overgrown. Just everything about you. Just you were just so heavenly minded, we're just lousy at everything. I don't read the Bible and find that. I find people taking the abilities that God has given them and, and notching them up and using them for the glory of God. So if you're an artist, be an incredible artist. If you're an athlete, be an incredible athlete. If you play an instrument, play incredibly on that instrument for the glory of God. And that'll make a statement. A bunch of guys in these Olympic events have made statements about Christ in their life as an opportunity that God has given them. You work hard at your job and you advance and you become manager of the company or vice president and you've got a, a realm of influence of people who now look to you in that success and you turn and you give glory to God and you allow people to see the work of God in your life. Listen, don't buy into this idea that Paul's down on, he's not down on that. Listen, I'm not, I'm not down on, and you know, I'm not down on cheering for the Saints game. I don't think, you know, Christians shouldn't cheer for the Saints. Uh, hey, I'm cool. I'm good with that. Cheer. Cheer loud. Cheer obnoxiously. I'm good with that. Okay, but you know, our only proviso is what Paul is saying here is if you do that for the Olympics, do it for eternity. If you're going to cheer like that for those Saints, bring it in here. And let it light this place up in an amazing way so that people can say, oh, you think the Superdome's loud? You ought to visit 5885 Florida Lee. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I'm with some of you. I spend my Mondays recovering a little bit. You know, it's a little bit of, you know, a little depression can set in on a, on a Monday. But let me just tell you, it does, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's, it's, we're just engaging life and we're human beings. But I'm never as affected on a Monday by whatever those saints did as I am by what these saints are doing. This is what owns my heart and my life. I'm more affected by how did God meet with us yesterday? How did the word of God affect our lives? Was our worship a worthy description of God? Did we come in and pour and wring our lives out before God who's worthy of everything that we have? I'm more concerned about that than... Drew Brees' stats and how the defense did. Although I am concerned about that. But, uh, and I think the defense is going to do well, just in case y'all wanted to take notes. And you were concerned about that as well. All right, well, he shifts here. All right, so now the shift. There's a, there's a prize to win, and there's an attitude in order to achieve that prize. There's some things to do along the way to, to achieve that, to finish well, to participate in this, what I would call the gospel decathlon. Right, you know that decathlon, I don't even know what all 10 items are you got to do to win the decathlon, but you got, you got to run, you got to throw stuff, you got to jump over things. Uh, it's a bunch of things. Right? You just can't be some guy good at one thing. You got to do a bunch of stuff. You know, I think the, the gospel, living the Great Commission, is kind of more like a decathlon than it is like one single event. 
You got you, you're doing a little bit of this, you're gonna get the prayer thing going on, you got Bible study going on, you got witness and evangelism, you got serving going on, you got part of the church, you're leading your family. I mean, it's a decathlon, right? It's a gospel decathlon. All right, now Paul shows up to the Olympic athletes in Corinth, and he, he kind of comes on the scene here like a like a coach. Really like a coach. How many of you guys always liked your coaches? Right, have you heard some of the stories from some of the athletes? You know, a girl who won the, the gold medal a few years ago in gymnastics talking about her coach. You know, and they ask her about it, and she's got a, this long pause thing. Uh, well, um, I, I didn't always like him. You know, it's like, okay, that's the first thing. It's like you're, you're on TV, and if you could really speak what you really felt, you really couldn't stand this guy. But then she goes on and says, but, but he was exactly what I needed. How many of you guys can remember you had coaches in your life who, they were that way? You you didn't like them. You didn't like the way they interacted with you. You didn't like the analysis that they were doing of how you were performing and how much effort you were putting in and how motivated you were and how much you were ready to lay something down for the sake of the team and calling you into question on some of that stuff, right? You didn't like that stuff, but it reached into something inside of you and it rattled you. And made you bring your A game. Right? Well, in a way, that's kind of what Paul's doing here. Paul's reaching into these guys' lives. Remember, Corinth's got a lot of problems going on inside of it. And so he reaches in like a coach and he rattles them. This thought from David Pryor. He says, Paul sensed that the Corinthians had become spiritually flabby. They'd been wanting the rewards without the hard work. They'd been more concerned for pleasant surroundings than for proper training conditions. Just as competitors at the Isthmian Games could take no shortcuts to physical fitness, so there are no easy options or routes of self-indulgence when we are serious about spiritual freedom. Just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. Forget your rights, Corinthians. Follow hard after that imperishable reward. Fulfill daily your responsibilities to yourselves, to one another, and to the Lord himself. Eric, you can go ahead and start to make your way up here. I want to make a case for something. We've We've just had this spiritual Summer Olympics event where... We've tried to find a a, a fun way to get before us the desperate need that we have as people to have a personal, daily walk with God. We, we, We can't be people who show up in a couple of meetings every once in a while and try and survive off of what God does in these settings. These are good settings. These are places where God meets us. But when you get before God and you open the word of God on your own and the Holy Spirit isn't using somebody else's thought processes and he's zeroing in and he's talking to you about your life, that's indispensable. When you're praying before God and you begin to let your heart get in tune with what God's doing next and the burden that God carries and the things that God says are important and critical and vital right now, and your, your own life begins to sort of take on a different dimension of how important is this thing over here that I'm freaking out about versus what God's putting in my heart to pray about. Or I, I get around God with some doctrinal study, and I, I grow deeply to know something about God that begins to rescue me from me and rescue me from people. So the only hope and the remedy that any of us have from being free from people the way Paul described, I'm free from all people, is to get a huge dose of God going on inside of me. And if I'm not taking God in, I'm not encountering God, I don't have the kind of prayer times to where somewhere during that time it's just not me reciting, 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 and I'm mindless and I'm cutting the grass and I'm planning to pay the bills and the car's broken and and who was that and I think the phone just rang. and, And I'm yet to really engage God. I might just need to just wrestle through that point and wrestle through that point and wrestle through that point until it feels like somebody just turned the lights on. God just showed up in my meeting and I'm being affected by God and my soul is being affected and faith is coming into my heart and I'm being changed by God. 
I got to have that kind of prayer life. You got to have that kind of prayer life. Right, so can I, can I turn coach here on us? I say, listen, daily routines. We're not asking you to eat 12,000 calories. Nobody's asking to swim 50 miles a week. But that dude did that for a perishable piece of metal. He was pretty devoted, right? As a matter of fact, poor thing, Michael Phelps is going to be remembered more after this Olympics than the last one of he could have done better. Right? You, you, you listen to the press the poor guy's getting? Because he didn't train as hard. And he says that. I didn't give it my all. Did, you know, a little bit less. Pulled out of an event, finished second, God forbid. <laughs> didn't get all golds like he usually did. But there's something in him, there's something in the athletic world, and there's something in the nation that says, you didn't give it your all, dude. And people made comments. But he was doing that for a little chunk of metal. And you and I have a responsibility. We have an obligation for the condition of our lives. We have an obligation for our walk to be something. The people around you, you have an obligation toward them. I have become all things to all people. Husbands, wives, you have, you have an obligation toward one another. Parents and children and children and parents and members of the body of Christ and people who sit at the desk next to you. Co-workers and people that are taking a class with you. You have an obligation to them. And I can guarantee you, if your personal training time doesn't involve getting in the Word of God and praying and seeking and learning and knowing God deeply, if that's not happening, then it is affecting the people around you without question. And so Paul, the spiritual coach, kind of gets up in the business of the Corinthians. I don't know. They get to the edge of the pool, and he's standing there with a stopwatch in his hand. Now, remember that, you know, don't go weird on me here. Okay. He's got a stopwatch in his hand. He's measuring them. Oh, but justification and we're all accepted by God. He's got a stopwatch in his hand right now. Because he's taught these guys, and you've been taught, this stopwatch has got nothing to do with whether or not God accepts you. Nothing to do with that. Oh, well then, I'm just free from all men. Yes, you are. You are free in ways that you haven't even begun to explore your freedom. Is there something else inside of you screaming out, make yourself a slave to everybody? And train like you're an Olympic athlete. And live toward the purpose of God like you're an Olympic athlete. And Paul stands with the Corinthians about to finish their lap. And he looks at their lives and he turns back to chapter 3 and he turns ahead to chapter 10. And, and he looks at a people... You guys serious about this? You guys want to win? Do, do you want to win the race? Listen, you're not bringing your A game. I mean, this is, this is like Jive Paul. You know, this is a different version of Paul. You ain't got your A game going on. Get back in the pool, man. Get back in the pool. Everybody on the line. This is Paul because this matters to him. And he's not okay with just Christians who have this half-hearted mentality that, hey, well, you know, I know, I know I'm not way out there. I know I'm not living on, on the edge in my Christian life. But, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm going to make the last bus to heaven. Um, you know, so I'm good. I'm good with that. That's not what Paul's saying here. He says, hey, we should all be thrilled that we're going to make our way to heaven, but run the race so as to win. To win what? The Jews and those under the law and the weak. Run, live your life so as to win them, so that I might by all means somehow save some. Don't just be okay with the fact that, hey, I'm, uh, hey I, got, I understand the doctrine of justification. I'm going to make it. I'm going to be in heaven. That's not what Paul's talking about here. These Corinthians are going to heaven, but they needed to have a coach get up in their business and say, listen, you got to bring your A game. There's something to be won. There's a prize. There's something to achieve with your life. This last quote from John Piper. 
says, life is not a game with no lasting consequences. The way we live our lives has eternal consequences. Life is a proving ground where we prove who we are, whom we trust, and what we cherish. The race of life has eternal consequences, not because we are saved by works, but because Christ has saved us from dead works to serve the living and true God with Olympic passion. The race of life has eternal consequences, not because grace is nullified by the way we run, but because grace is verified by the way we run. Do you understand there's nobody who lives on the block with Michael Phelps that turned the TV on and went, oh my gosh, honey, oh my gosh, the kid down the street, he's in the Olympics. Can you believe that? Do you think anybody was shocked? You watch the guy get up at some ungodly hour, burping down some 12,000 calorie event on his way to his car with his stuff to go drive, and he comes back, and you watch him do that every day and every day and every day. Even on Christmas Day, the dude got up and went and swam for six hours. You watched him do that. No one was surprised that this guy was an Olympic athlete. Listen, anybody in your life, would they be surprised that you're in the gospel decathlon? Would they be surprised by that? Do they watch the manner of your life that you train every day for an event that matters more than temporary medals? Would the people who know you know that about you just by the training regimen of your life? They know you get around the Word of God. You get around prayer. You're somebody who gets around God because you want to win. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for making use of earthly examples that we get to help us to get other things right in our lives. Lord, thank you for fresh awareness of what human eagerness can look like as we look at a guy who swims or a guy who runs or a girl who practices gymnastics and a life-transforming, consuming way. Lord, that's what people are capable of. And for the most part, that's what people without the Spirit of God are capable of when they really believe something has value, even if it's just 12 seconds worth. How much more is the prize worth for us. Lord, we don't want to be a people who run aimlessly. There's no training going on because we're not aware that there's an event to take part in. Lord, change that about us. Lord, may it never be, may it never be that human beings could get more motivated for a moment on a platform than we could get motivated by seeing others share in the blessing of the gospel, of seeing their lives redeemed, of the storyline being changed of a God who saves to the uttermost those for whom we live our lives in front of, those that we witness and share with, those that we pray for, those who have a chance to see in our lives something of the life of God that commends them to want to find out more. God, we need... I need you to be a coach to us this morning. God, some of us, I know this is just the truth, when we get yelled at by the coach, we quit the team. Lord, I pray that we got something more going on inside of us than that. God, I pray the prize matters more to us than that. Holy Spirit, where you need to yell at me, yell at me. I know you love me. 
I know you're committed to me and you're not going anywhere and you're going to work in my life today, tomorrow, next month, next year to transform me. I know you have been kind and patient and caring with me, but if you need to get me off my butt, get me moving. Because there's something at stake here. This isn't aimless living for no reason. My life has purpose here. God, rattle us, disturb us. Awaken us. But we don't want to show up at the games unprepared. So God, I pray for us as a church. Lord, I I pray that you will remind us. Every time we see an Olympic symbol on some Kellogg's cornflake box, God, you will remind us that we run in the real race that matters. God, that we are doing something that matters for an eternity. And we won't just hold a medal on the cover of a cereal box. God, we're going to stand around a throne with thousands and multitudes of millions of people. And we're going to see faces that were one, Lord, because something you did in our life touched something about them. God, may we never treat that as insignificant. Lord, may the trophies that are around us on that day motivate us to stand on the platform and to celebrate what grace did on display in our lives to proclaim a God that people wanted to be saved by. They do this for a perishable wreath. We, for an imperishable. Help us.